0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So just a short two-week class talking about the aggregates of clinging. It's a sophisticated map. (laughs) There's a lot there. And hopefully we can sort of Take a step back. Sometimes it helps me to, like, okay, just lean back even when I'm in my sitting practice doing this. Like, what's, what's the essence of this? Right? And not try to synthesize it all or try too hard trying to get it right or understand it fully. Uh, but just get a sense of what the essence of this teaching is. And... uh So when we take a map like the aggregates, it can be useful just to think about some of what I said last week, which was, this is the Buddha's way of describing this human experience. Like, what is this thing we call a human being, or this thing we call a life? This human life. What is this? And sort of chopping it up and helping us see the components. Sometimes in the literature, the word constituents is used, which I really like that word because it reminds me of being responsible to and responsible for. So this, the, the constituents or the aggregates of clinging, like these parts that are responsible for this construction of self, and we cling to this thing called the self. Responsible to the self. Without these components, there wouldn't be, be hard to come up with the self. The self needs these constituents to actually be a thing. But when we take this thing and we divide it up into these parts, it's hardly a thing anymore. We can start to see that. So with this map, there are two parts, one part body and one part mind. Or one of the aggregates is talking about form, and then four of them are talking about mind, heart mind. We can use those words interchangeably. And please make that flip-flop in your head If it makes sense, right? Sometimes I'll kind of get myself confused, like what? Then I'll switch and use the other word. I'm like, oh yeah, that really lands now. So I might the words that I use to describe heart, mind, heart, mind, or I sometimes um, intersperse the word the words nervous system because that has a real strong kind of embodied feeling to me, nervous system. So you might play with those three options in your head. So we have this first aggregate of form, rupa, or form, which we can uh, summarize to be the the body, any of the experiences known through the body, like any, any of the experiences of the coming through the sense gates or the objects. So hearing or what the mind hears, for example, So this experience of body or form. And then we have feeling, but not emotions, but that uh, element of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It starts to point us in the direction of how the mind makes sense of experience we often an experience comes into awareness right like a sound and then there's a like oh i like that that was pleasant or a sound and like ugh that's wrecking my flow right now the sound of the traffic while i'm trying to meditate it's an unpleasant sound yeah so this kind of seeking pleasure or resisting resisting pain is a really normal human predicament and then we have the third, this third aggregate of perception. Perception is the way we make sense of our world. Starting to name conceptually named things like meditation center, meditation hall, door, foot, these kind of things. And I'm going to talk more about I decided to pick one tonight. So I'm going to talk more about perception but I'll go through them all really briefly. So form, feeling, perception, mental formations, all of the ways that the mind constructs something. So these thoughts, opinions, ideas are all mental formations. The mind thinks like the nose smells, like the ears hear, like the body feels, sensations that are there. So these are all the constructs of mind, volitional formations, mental formations. And then the fifth one is consciousness. Consciousness is this basic, it's what happens when the uh, mind is awake, right? We know that. Awareness, we might call that awareness. It's a lot more complex than this, but we need to start somewhere, right? So we can just take it in in these simple ways, like, okay, consciousness is, maybe we can call that awareness. So these aggregates, the Buddha's really pointing us to how this, these aggregates in each of them are really empty of self. They're void, they're hollow, they're insubstantial actually processes that are occurring all of the time, but we don't see them in their component form. They're actually happening so quickly that we miss them, and because we miss them, we think that this experience is one of, continuity, and the only way that we can make sense of that continuity is to call it something. So because we don't see form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, all doing their job, we say, this is Shelley, for example, right? This must be me. This must be me. Right? And then that causes all kinds of difficulty for us. But we can start to see if we can deconstruct the sense of self into its constituents, into its components. We can start to see the activity of each of these things, and it makes it harder to find a self there. So we're deconstructing our perception of self. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have moments. We're going to have moments. This is the Buddha said, human beings are going to have these moments where we forget and miss, and have a misunderstanding there, like this is a Shelly, or this is a Gabe, or whatever. We're going to look at each other, and immediately this continuity of experience is going to be there, and we're going to go like, oh yeah. And that's just the way things are. So we don't actually have to try to not make that happen. We don't have to try to, to be somewhere. We can actually just be right here and use our awareness practice to see these, to see into these, each of these constituents. We can see them. We can deconstruct this and start to look at them individually. And then we might be able to notice, in moments, their activity, these processes, like the process of perception that's happening right now. And in that moment, it's hard to feel into a Shelley because we're actually seeing, oh, yeah, this is the process of perceiving. It's happening right here. I can see it play out right here, for example. One of my teachers, Andrea Fella, talks about the aggregates quite a bit, and one of the things that she has said is she talks about the aggregates as like a, a rainbow, right? If we can think about a rainbow, a rainbow seems to have a thingness to it, she sometimes says, but the your rainbow the rainbow arises in dependence of many conditions, right, including light, rain in just the right way. And it depends on an observer who's positioned just right. So the rainbow is dependent on other conditions, not on its own conditions. It's dependent on light and sound, just like the self is dependent on form and perception and uh, feeling and volitional formations and consciousness. So these constituents conspire, occurring quickly, giving us the illusion of continuity. And the only way to make sense of that is to call it something, so we call it a self. So perception, and this is the way the mind makes sense of the world, basically. The way the mind uh, reconstructs sense data that comes in and makes sense of that sense data. So, the way that mind uses information that it brings in through its visual the visual field the, through the auditory field through the you know everything and just has to figure out a way this human experience needs to figure out a way to be functional in the world and right? in very simple ways we if we know that's a door. We know that's a doorway. We know when we op- we have to open the door in order to walk through it, right? So we perceive door. We perceive doorway, and we know what to do with that. So, a real functional process at play here, and we can see that perception. We can see this working all of the time, even in simple ways like the door and the doorway, but also as when we come to common ground, right, you come in here, there's this, we have probably perceptions that are working, even if we don't notice them. Like we see a room, we might call this room a sacred space, right? We're already perceived, we're having some perception about the room we don't necessarily see form or light or texture, but we have this perception, and we have a perception of the people that come to a place like this, right? So even we might think this is a sacred space and calm people are here, for example, (laughs) or people who need calm. (laughs) Probably more accurate. (laughs) And we might even look around the room and see people we know, right? And have a perception of who those people are, right people we like, or people we are suspicious of, or people we think we know and trust, or people we don't know and are suspicious of <laughs> or don't trust, something like that. But if we just I'm not asking you to do this, but if we just <laughs> look around the room and watched with the intention of watching perception, there might be a lot that we notice here. Got the altar over there. The mind goes like, oh, that's beautiful, and it's sacred, for example. So perceptions are also closely associated with one's views and opinions, beliefs, perception is also what the mind does to pick out the important characteristics of experience so it picks out certain things and it leaves behind others so it's it's really a, it's in relationship with all of our previous experiences our previous lived experiences and our the capacity of our heart mind body to integrate those experiences And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a minute. There's a lot to say about that. Form and color come into our eyes, but the mind creates, but the mind takes that in and creates concepts, people, or judgments. The mind is really making sense of the sense experience that comes in. So perception is a reflection of something that's there but it's based on all this previous integration of information from our minds from our minds stack of files. Pulls it out and connects the dots. Like oh this is like that this reminds me of that. This is okay. that's not okay because this is familiar to me. There's a whole lot of stuff that we don't even notice because we've been in the habit of not noticing. And so it doesn't kind of come in to our field. So perception is useful because it helps us live our lives in a functional way. And it's also not that trustworthy, because perception makes a lot of mistakes. When you can, we can de- de- deconstruct it this way and see how, start to get a sense of how perception is built on our previous experiences, what we notice, what we don't notice, our selective noticing. Those things that are charged are going to get our attention. We're going to construct meaning out of them. And then those will be brought up later and influence how we perceive this moment. We can see how much perception is actually a subjective experience it can only ever be a subjective experience there's this you might have um, seen uh, there's all these studies in the world of psychology about uh, giving people like faces angry faces neutral faces pleasant faces different different studies like that and one of these, um, in one of these studies, they showed children who um, have been abused uh, faces, angry faces, neutral faces, and the children quickly think the neutral faces are angry faces. Right? That you can see the way perception influences that previous experience. Right? It's really hard to see neutral a face that's just neutral as being that. So perception is useful because it's a shortcut in the mind that life is easier and and more predictable and safe. So these ways of perceiving are. we have to remember that that this is actually this constitution, this nervous system's attempt at finding some ground. Perceiving This being able to predict what a person is like, what their personality is like, what their behavior is like, is a way of this self trying to find some safety, some comfort, some ground in the world when there actually is none. Yeah. So this, and that's a hard reality to take in. It's hard for any of us to take that in. It takes a lot of patience, a lot of practice, and in moments we get a taste of it, but then that self quickly goes, Shh. nope, that's not it. I've seen this play out in my life so many times in so many ways, and one of those times was a year ago when I was not having some health challenges. I've talked about this. I talked about this last week, I think. And one of the things that was very was interesting to me at that time was that heart was grappling with the body that was not reliable, and what this mind perceived, it seemed like 24 hours a day, was dying things. The earth that was dying, trees that were dying, change that was happening, bodies that were sick, you know, it was like the only thing the mind was interested in noticing. My perception was just like aging, aging dying, aging, dying, aging, dying, again and again and again. And it was uh, sometimes hard to take in, as you can imagine. Hard to take that all in. Hard to rest in this, the uncertainty of this life. So the nervous system, this sense of I am, finds ways to feel like there's something predictable happening here. And we do this in a myriad of ways, especially relationally. There are these moments in my relationship with my partner that have been really profound, noticing the way I perceive her. And in some moments, I talk to her, and I'm expecting her to respond In the same old ways that she normally responds, however, those are. And sometimes when I'm talking to her, she sounds like a person I don't even know. And those are interesting moments like, okay, right? You get to, of course, you aren't the same person I knew yesterday. Why would you be the same person? And we've been together a long time, so this idea that. I'm waking up with the same person I went to sleep with is really kind of an interesting thing that this human wants some predictability in my life. And then when it's not there, it's kind of jarring, right? It's a little unpleasant until the mind goes, there's some wisdom there that goes, well, of course it's like this. She's acting, she's saying something that feels totally out of the box right now, even in very small ways. Like I expect her to get uh, upset with me for the same things that she normally gets upset with me for. And instead, <laughs> I won't roll myself out. <laughs> but instead, she responds with a lot of compassion. It's like, oh, OK, right? Yeah, a person. And we do do this with each other all the time, right? We, look at each other and we think we know this person based on our previous experience with this person. And we can see how sometimes it's hard in our daily life to see all the ways that we're perceiving, perceiving that the process of perception is at work until we're outside of what our normal experiences are. So traveling is a good example for me, and it doesn't even have to be someplace far away. Um, can be someplace close, or to a, into a community, being invited into a community that we aren't familiar with, and it takes a minute to like orient. But the mind gets really curious about how things work here, right? There's a place in California. Where it's one of the blue zones, do you know what the blue zones are? yeah, places where in the there's like how many seven of them, Sandy eight, something like that, places in the world where people are extraordinarily healthy and live longer than people do everywhere else, and so there's been some research about these they call them blue zones, and what are the what makes up you know what contributes to good health in these places. And there's one a place here, Albert Lee, I believe, is a blue zone. And I don't know the details of Albert Lee, but I do. I grew up in California, so I know um, there's this place in California that's another blue zone. And going to a place that is a little bit different than what we're used to kind of breaks up all of the perceptions that are at play ordinarily. So we travel around the city, for example, and we have a sense of what people do for fun and entertainment and how much of our social life is constructed around eating and drinking things and socializing in restaurants and bars or whatever just as cultural norm here right, in the city that we live in. And then go to a place like Loma Linda in California and people don't do those things that much, Right. And they're not exercising the way that we normally go for a run or do 30 minutes of this or 30 minutes of that, but their lifestyle gives them the exercise that they need, that their bodies need. So they walk places and um, do physical things. They labor over making food and taking care of themselves in different ways than we do here. They don't consume alcohol, for example, right? So... Whereas we might have this idea of who a person is and what our culture is like, it may be invisible to us until it's different. And then we're like, whoa, whoa, wait, there's no fun happening here. (laughs) Oh, wait, there's a different kind of fun happening here. Or people don't exercise here. Well, that's not true. right? They exercise differently. You see that? See the way perception kind of makes itself known in these ways? So we need to learn to recognize the diluting influence of perception also. Hmm. Perception is always has an element of confusion in there. The mind constructs a perception, like, for example, a Judy. right? I know Judy. I have an idea of who Judy is. Judy and I have known each other for many years now. Right, Judy? Many years. And so we've worked together in the office, and we've done things together at Common Ground, so I have a sense of who this person is. And yet, like I was mentioning, my idea of Judy is always different than Judy. Right? I can only ever know Judy through my own subjective lens, and that's always going to be limiting because I don't actually know... Judy's own lived experience. Not only that, but Judy Judy is actually all of the each of the aggregates, right? Just like I am a combination of each of the aggregates of form and mental formations. So when I look at Judy, I definitely don't think of all the thoughts that go through Judy's head, for example, right? I don't know all the perceptions that flow through Judy's heart and mind. I don't actually know all of the sensations in Judy's body. I don't actually know these things, so my experience is always only subjective and completely off the mark (laughs) to some degree. So I kind of project onto, we project onto each other our roles and identities or based on our own subjective experience. We project those onto each other and expect that the person will live those out. So I notice that in this role, it's hard not to talk about this role of being a teacher. And many of you have known, you have your own experiences of being a leader in any community. And my idea of who I am is different than your idea of who I am? Right? I remember this showing up for me really clearly. I was uh, annually some people in my community have a gathering uh, in my queer community, and I had been looking forward to doing this, going and seeing it's an intergenerational gathering, children and elders, and it's a lot of fun, and I just felt really queer <laughs> I was getting ready to go and I was just like feeling like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go be with my people and right and excited about who I was gonna see. And then I walked through the door. You know, I had this whole perception of who I am, this queer person. And I walk through the door and like I see several people from common ground there. And I walk through the house and they're a oh, hello hi. and I was like, oh wait I'm a leader at Common Ground. I'm not just a queer person right now. So it was just an interesting moment to see my perceptions, my perception of myself, and my perception of what other people, how other people perceive me. I don't actually know. Those people might have been like, they're queer, right? They might not have been thinking about how they know me. And so we get to explore, you know, we get to explore these ways of perceiving, we get to get close to, get used to noticing how perception manifests in our lives, and so that we can learn, we can learn by way of noticing what we're inclined to do about that. Often we tend to act on our perceptions and we have only partial information. So we tend to act out our perceptions when they're actually inaccurate for us. So we don't need to even have a goal of um, of getting rid of perceptions, because that's not going to happen. But we can learn to be aware of perceptions so that we don't, we're not dependent on on uh, having these having an experience that is void of perceptions, right? So we don't need to try to do that. The mind is going to perceive just the way, way that the mind is going to feel, the way that the body is going to feel, the way that the ears are going to hear, the mind is going to think, right? These activities of body and mind are going to be happening all the time so that it works for us to learn how to wake up to them so that we're not, um, what's the word, Um, only subject to reacting to them, playing them out, messing things up, for example. Another example is something I think about quite a bit, is understanding whiteness and how whiteness has been built and all the ways that my mind has gathered, my, this heart, this heart-mind experience has integrated information from previous experiences to lead to this. Right. So what I know about whiteness is that... Um, Whiteness is about domination and superiority. And a lot of the ways that I understand whiteness is, is that I have learned to disconnect. Disconnect from my roots, from my cultural experiences. And so I can feel into that and the ways in which I my mind perceives and acts that out on a regular basis. So this... Like, I don't feel like I have culture, or this perception of, you know, I'm just a human being untethered to other human beings. This is an expression of whiteness. It's my perception is actually making itself known here. Like, I'm untethered to other human beings. That feeling of I'm untethered to other human beings is a perception that I have that's in line with this experience of whiteness. So, one of the ways that the Buddha used to talk about perception was to liken it to a mirage. <clears throat> he goes through all of the in this. Um, This particular sutta, he goes through all of the aggregates, but about perception he says, now suppose that in the last month of the hot season, a mirage were shimmering and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a mirage? In the same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any perception that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in perception? Seeing thus, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones grows disenchanted with form, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with mental fabrications, disenchanted with consciousness. Disenchanted, he grows dispassionate. Through dispassion, he's released. With release, there's the knowledge released. He discerns that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There's nothing further for this world. That is what the Blessed One said. Having said that, the one well gone, the teacher said further, foam is like a glob, form is like a glob of foam, feeling a bubble, perception a mirage, fabrications a banana tree, consciousness a magic trick. This has been taught by the kinsmen of the sun. However you observe them, appropriately examine them, they're empty, void, to whoever sees them appropriately. Beginning with the body as taught by the one with profound discernment, when abandonment by three things, when abandoned by three things, life, warmth, and consciousness, form is rejected, cast aside, when bereft of these, it lies thrown away, senseless, a meal for others. That's the way it goes. It's a magic trick. an idiot's babbling, it's said to be a murderer. No substance here is found. Thus, a monk, persistent, aroused, should view the aggregates by day and by night, mindful, alert, should discard all fetters, should make himself his own refuge, should live as if his head were on fire, in hopes (laughs) of the state with no falling away. A mirage. So a a mirage is a reflection, right? Right? It's this illusion of something. It's taken to be something, but it's not actually something. It's perceived as water, but it's not water. So we go in search of something, but it keeps receding and we never get there. So this is perception. We keep going in search of something, but it's it's never enough. It's never that thing that we're in search of. So perceptions are like this. Delusion is always working, trying to, you know, we're trying to grasp something that's there, but it's never enough. It's never that. And this part about perception being natural is something that we can really take in because... Even though this is true, even though we're grasping, even though with perception it's just grasping after something that's never going to fulfill for us, we can watch this play out, right? We can, we're still practicing when we watch ourselves construct, need something more, right? Want something more. When we want some stability, some ground, some fixity, some permanence, you can just watch this self go like, I need something more than this uncertainty. And have a lot of compassion for that. Like, of course, that's the way it is. If I think I'm a self that's going to be annihilated, why wouldn't I want to find safety? Why wouldn't I want to know, have a view of who this person is so I know if it's safe enough to get close to them? Why wouldn't I want to have my previous experiences integrated into my current experience so that I can know if I should be walking down the street at this time of day or night by myself, right? So why wouldn't there be why wouldn't perception, why wouldn't this sense of self keep constructing perception, making sense of the world in this way, by way of perception? Why wouldn't this happen? And so, by throwing our arms around that, like, oh yeah, sweetie, you just want to be safe. You just want to be happy. You're just trying to make sense of the world in the best way that you have. You can, you have misinformation, and, you're getting, and perception is always wrong, but. This is what's happening right here. Yeah, we can start to be a little bit free of the. We can be free. We can start to be free of the problem that we make out of perception. Yeah. We can start to see it, and not be reactive to it. This is, I thought my wife was supposed to be like that, but now she's like this. Interesting, right? I don't actually have to try to force her back into that box or get angry, like, it's not how you're supposed to. You're supposed to be mad at me right now. (laughs) Don't you know I did a wrong thing? (laughs) I didn't put the laundry away after I folded it. That's a wrong thing. You're supposed to be mad at me now, and you're not. You're being so kind. What's up with that? I don't even have to ask that question. I can just go, oh, yeah, look at this. This perception was, I had this perception of her, and now there's a new, I'm try, I'm getting to know a new person, and can that be OK? This is the way things work, because they're always changing. Perception is always in flux. It's always shifting. Because our hearts and minds are integrating new information all of the time. So can I construct a new view of whiteness? Can I be a person who understands something about the way this country has evolved, and who has power, and who has privilege, and who has authority? Can I see the way these things move through my heart and mind, these experiences of disconnection or superiority? And can I accept, like, oh, yeah, this is the way it is? I don't actually have to reject any of this. I don't actually have to form views or opinions about it. I can just see it playing out and then decide what feels like the right next move. ah, like, oh, I don't have all the information. Maybe I'm never going to have all the right information because my perception is always going to be subjective. It's always going to selectively choose what to attend to and selectively choose what to reject. It's selectively going to uh, ignore particular things, because my safety, my security depends on it. Right? So why wouldn't in my whiteness, why wouldn't I rest in my privilege? Because it feels safe here. There's some illusion of safety here. Uh, isn't that interesting? I can see I don't have to be afraid of any of this playing out. Just like I don't have to be afraid of my wife being a different person today than she was yesterday. Okay. Oh, I loved this. Ajahn Suchito. He says, then what one what one perceives, one thinks about. Now a little more action starts occurring, thinking. This is much more to do with personal history, adding the narrative. I've, I'm always like this, or he is like this, or she is like that. So what one thinks about, one complicates. There's this word complicate, or papancha, which also translate as pro- proliferates or projects or diversifies. Suddenly, it becomes all kinds of manifestations. It's this, it's that, it shouldn't be, it could be, it ought to be, it reminds me of this. What am I going to do about this? Does this sound familiar? I call it the Papancha Fairy. The Papancha Fairy waves a wand, and then suddenly all of this stuff comes rising up. You can drop in one word or two words like current president (laughs) and bong. All this stuff comes rising up, cascades of emotionally charged thought perceptions of he, she, it, he, can't, shouldn't, and how dare they, and so on. You feel drenched in gobs of past, present, and future. That's the flooding based on what perception brings up. Ah, right? (laughs) So there's so many ways to explore perception. Take some of what was offered tonight, and use it, and if it doesn't land, don't. Just get interested in your own experience, what you learn from watching your mind, getting close to the process of thinking, mental formations, and how the mind, how this heart, how this constitution tries to find some safety in a world that's really not safe, to find some uh, permanence in the world that and an experience that's really impermanent all the time. All right, thanks for listening. Love to hear a little from you. We have a few minutes left if you have any comments or questions.
1: Thanks. My name is Curtis. Uh this has been super super interesting cuz this is the second time I've gone through a Buddhist studies. Uh, course here about the five aggregates. And the first time I think was two years ago. And it was uh, very uh, revelatory for me because I think I started, I mean, that's when I really got a profound sense that I could have a relationship with my own mind and that I needed to have a relationship with my own mind. And why do I need to have a relationship with my own mind? Because if I'm inside of my I and me and mine, inside of the five aggregates, um, I'm just labeling and reacting and filtering things through my moods and attitudes and creating stories. And basically, I'm a meaning-making machine, and I'm... um, And I'm creating a distortion, and I'm calling it reality. And everything becomes, I suffer because everything's so fixed when you're there. It's so fixed. It's so positional. It just goes round and round and has a lot of drama, and it just doesn't have any life, really, in that place. So then I come to the teaching of no-self or non-self or whatever, which drove me nuts two years ago. Because I just it's just too philosophical, too kind of esoteric. I, I, at any rate, it was like uh, it was a puzzle that was annoying. And so now th- the way I think about it is that's useful that I came to realize over these last two weeks in your teachings is that it's not for me that I have no self. It is, oh, no, I have a self, and he's running around, and he's deciding to do this, and he's making up that, and he's, you know... So it's, I have a self, it's just an illusion. And so that, that's my back way into saying no self. So the freedom and liberation you talk about is this life, I imagine, without filters so that I can be present to what's happening, what's really happening, without labeling and reacting and filtering and mood tones and, and all that. And I get my question is, what do you think are some of those attributes that you would ascribe to being in that place of awareness, of liberation, of freedom? For me, it's kind of a wide-open receptivity. You're open to what's occurring. You're not saying it can't be or wanting to make it different. At the same time, you sort of have an energia eye feel like I have a kind of energized vigilance that life's important enough to pay attention to and you know. And to me, all those things depend on um the promise of possibility of the moment. I mean liberation to me is the is possibility is what I guess I'm saying. And so if I'm living without filter, I'm living within it's not that the moment is like this it's more it's also like and it doesn't even have to be like that it could be this or it could be that or it could be that or it could be that depending on what the next thing i say or the next thing i do or so to me it's it's it gives you in a place of mindfulness or so pre- is is a place of possibility almost of uh optimistic expectancy
0: Is there a question for me in
1: there? I wanted to know whether you felt because you mentioned too that a lot of people when the last last week that when you said this no self, a lot of people think of it as a cold space, a little too cerebral, too not very juicy. That's what I'm. So I'm asking how. Okay, if it's not that, then what? I'm saying it's possibility.
0: Yeah, one of the I think last week I described not self as nature, right? Sayada Oteginia uses this word nature all the time to describe this experience of anatta. It's this sense of being in the flow of experience without making something happen and we can have that and we can taste that freedom that not having to be somebody not having to do something in very small moments regular ordinary moments of our life we're just accepting there's a lot of patience and acceptance and care and life is just moving like watching the mind flipped through its incessant thinking in such random ways. Like, where did that come from, that memory from third grade, (laughs) right? And why now? Or how did, like, the mind is, the heart is happy and then full of doubt, like it's going to explode, there's no way out of this, and then completely content all in the span of 30 minutes. Like, how does that happen? Well, if it's like that, I mean, I certainly didn't make that happen. Or, as another example, anxiety for me has been a big teacher. So watching anxiety show up in moments when it doesn't, there's no threat, and then watching it not be here in a moment when there is a lot of threat. Okay, that's interesting. So if it's not me... Being in charge of experience, then how does this happen? How does experience come to be and fall away? How is that? What is that? What is working there? And what seems to shake out, what seems to be true in my experience, is that the conditions arrive in some configuration that make it possible for this arising. And then when they're no longer like that, The experience is no longer like that. And I don't have say over when the conditions come together in a particular way or when they fall apart. I just don't have say. If I did, it would make sense that those moments of love, because they feel so good and the heart really takes them in, would occur again and again and again and again and again. And instead, they occur, they occur, and then it's full of doubt, right? Then the heart is full of doubt or despair, or like, ah, ah. And then there's like, oh, OK, more freedom. And then there's like, ah, oh, no, not. And then there's more freedom. So how is that? How is that? And that's just the question. Like, how is that? <laughs> But just watch, experience, and see. How does it work? Is there a self that's making this happen? Or is this an expression of nature unfolding in its own time? Question over here. Tim, last one.
2: I've been practicing. I've had an t- opportunity to practice a lot lately, in, including practicing when I'm with talking to, when I'm talking to people on a daily basis, and I find if I'm able to keep a really s- steady mindfulness going through a conversation, my perceptions of them they get. I'm able to. There's these superficial ones, and I'm kind of able to push them aside, and the perceptions that uh, that arise are a lot m- they're more mysterious and they're more like compassionate and they're more like how can i orient my perception of this person towards either helping them or teaching them or uh aid it, like making their life better in some way and it seems like the pers- the perception gets deeper. I don't know how to describe it. I thought I'd share that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Tim. It's just after nine. I trust that you don't mind staying here until nine thirty or ten. But <laughs> 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 maybe that's a faulty perception. <laughs> Thanks so much for your kind attention these last two weeks. It's been really fun to be here with you and practice and share together, be in community, to get to know each other. Uh, Yeah, thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website